For the rest of you, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, wrapping up the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. Our slow march through the book of Corinthians. Or if you're in England, 1 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians. The church through the ages has never been lacking for culture wars or controversies, has it? And even when cultural influence wanes, whether here in the West or elsewhere, there can be a a scrambling for the regaining of influence, for the regaining of that rightful spot at the top of the social hierarchy of influencing politics and shaping entertainment and whatever else we might consider to be most important. It can often be the case where, the, where when Christians or Christian churches find themselves or perceive themselves as being perhaps a minority in a culture, there can be a temptation to appeal to the culture, to appease the culture, to perhaps even change a message in a way that would attract the culture, to gain respect from those outside the church. Is it ever the case that the pews, so to speak, can control a pulpit? That the needs and the wants of hearers become a tail that wags the dog, so to speak? In a materialistic age, we may make the Christian message about material prosperity, Fishing out proof text from the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. Taking heavenly promises and turning them into earthly promises. Is it any wonder that tens of thousands flock to churches like this? In a therapeutic age, we can form the Christian message to helping people not find redemption from their sins, but to be happy and whole in the way that they think about themselves and others. In a political age, we can form the message into a political message, perhaps even in a reach for power in order to gain influence. Whatever it is that our listeners demand to know about, that temptation lies ever before us to change the message so that more and more outside the church would respect the church. No doubt this puts pressure on a preacher to produce results, to fit his message to particular wants to fit the concerns of the day and to allow them to control the pulpit. And so even if we were to think about many of the controversies or culture wars or, or many of the other personalities that have risen up in recent years, we think about perhaps the racial strife, we think about political stratification, we think about public health crises, we think about a war in Ukraine, is it going to lead to a world war? All of which are important issues. And people want answers to these issues. What do the Christians have to say? Does Christianity have any intelligent or any impressive answers to offer on any of these kinds of things? Now, beloved, I don't mean to imply that the Bible doesn't speak generally to these and many other issues, but the main message of the Christian faith, that is, the message in which the very power of God is found, is not going to be in a political message, a materialistic message, a therapeutic message. It is in a weak-sounding, foolish message about a crucified Savior. 
It is in Christ crucified. The Apostle Paul is trying to bring this church back from the brink. Worldly divisions have infiltrated the church. They're concerned with being impressive in the world's eyes. We saw that Jews demanded signs, Greek demand wisdom. They don't want the simple gospel of Christ crucified. They want more than that. And should we give it to them? If this is what would gain their respect, if this is what would bring them in our doors, there will always be a clamoring for more than Christ crucified. Because Christ crucified is foolishness to the world. And so today we consider Paul's ongoing pastoral correction to these whom he calls his brothers and sisters, whom he loves. We're going to begin our reading in verse 26 and go all the way through verse 5. So if you would stand with me to honor the public reading of God's word. And as we do, I want you to keep this big idea in mind. The main point of that Paul is making in these handful of verses. God demonstrates his power by calling nobodies through the folly of Christ crucified. God demonstrates his power by calling nobodies through the folly of Christ crucified. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, didn't come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. Paul has been trying to persuade them to not empty the cross of its power by, their, by the world's culture, by the culture coming into the church. We saw that in verse 17. Because he says in verse 18, the word of the cross that is the gospel is the very power of God. In the New Testament, there are only three things that are described as the power of God. We see one here, verse 18. The word of the cross is the power of God. We see the second there in verse 24. Jesus Christ, the power of God. And we see one other in Romans chapter 1 verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
Three things in all of the New Testament are described as being God's very power. And those three things are all one and the same thing. It is the message of Christ crucified who becomes to us the very wisdom of God. That is the power of God. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, don't empty the gospel of its power by trying to make it impressive to the world. No, the gospel, he says in verse 25, may appear weak or offensive, but it is, he says, the very wisdom and the power of God. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And on the heels of this context, beginning in verse 26, all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is going to present us with two case studies. The first case study is going to come in verses 26 to 31, and he's essentially going to call them to consider their calling. How do we know that the gospel is the power of God? He's going to say, first of all, you need to consider your calling. But secondly, he's going to say, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 4, there's a second case study. That when I tell you that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, I want you to consider my ministry. So he says, consider your calling, and then we're to consider Paul's ministry. And both of these case studies are ultimately leading to one final conclusion there in verse 5. This is what these case studies, and of all of Paul's arguments, should lead us to. That is that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but the very power of God. That is the gospel. That we would not look anywhere other than Christ to find the very wisdom of God. Follow along with me in these case studies. Paul says in verse 26, consider. What does he want him to consider? Literally see. I want you to see something. I'm making a a case, proof of what I'm arguing. And he reminds them of who they were prior to their conversion. He's saying that according to worldly standards, that is according to the flesh, according to that which is corruptible and passing away, according to that which is opposed to God, self-reliant and worldly, according to these worldly standards, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, and not many of you were of noble birth. Those were the things that mattered. You were nobodies. Early church opponents, those who would oppose Christianity in its first handful of centuries, would say, well, no wonder so many people come into the church. No one in their right mind, nobody wise, nobody sophisticated at least, would accept this unbelievable message. No wonder the churches are made up mostly of lower classes of uneducated people. No wonder there are no clever people or influential people or powerful people. Nobody who really counts would listen to that silly message by that silly apostle and believe it. Origen, the third century theologian, echoed the voice of his Christian opponent, Celsus, when he wrote, Those who summon people to the other mysteries, make this preliminary proclamation. Whoever is pure from all defilement, whose soul knows nothing of evil, and who's lived well and righteously. Such are the preliminary exhortations of those who promise purification from sins. In other words, if you would be purified from your sins, and you are those who are pure, whose souls know nothing of evil, who's lived well and righteously, have we got a religion for you? But Origen goes on 
speaking on behalf of Celsus, his Christian his opponent. But let us hear what these Christians call, quote, whoever is a sinner, they say. Whoever's unwise, whoever's a child, and in a word, whoever's a wretch, the kingdom of God will receive him. This was foolishness. Can you see then the pressure and the temptation to want to be something other than what God had called them to be, to be impressive in the world's eyes? But why such an ordinary group of people? God's purpose, as we're going to see in verses 27 and 28, was to pour out his grace and to overthrow human pride. As we talked about before, the gospel is human pride repellent. I went home a couple weeks ago after giving that brilliant illustration of, of insect repellent and spiritual deed, and I asked my, my family, I said, hey, what would you think about that? And they were like, not so much. <laughs> my illustrations, my family is human pride repellent. Will not let me wallow in it. But it's human pride repellent. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul means to do, that here in verses 27 to 28, he calls nobodies to shame the somebodies. That is, that he would prick, as it were, the bubble of human pride. Look at this. Three times speaks of God's choosing, that of his acting in history, what he has decreed to do in eternity past, that those whom he has predestined, he has chosen, and those whom he has chosen, he has called. Those whom he has called, he has justified. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, chose what is weak to shame the strong, chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to, to nothing the things that are. The folly of God is seen in building his church with the kind of people that nobody would want to build a religion with. It's kind of like when we were growing up in elementary school and you played kickball. And everybody always wants to pick the biggest, fastest, most athletic kids to be on their team first. They're always the first one picked. And Paul's saying, in a sense, as other people look at the church, it's like building a team with the people that are always picked last. It's like building the team with the Jonos and the Andrades of the world. You can't win with those kind of people. What kind of religion is this? What kind of church is this? How is a church like that ever going to survive? It's like if one of us were to be elected president. And we want to know, who are you going to fill your cabinet with? Are you going to fill it with PhDs in mathematics of economic experts and five-star generals? No, I'm just going to fill my cabinet with ordinary people from the old neighborhood. What would people think? Our country is going down the tubes. What is going to happen to our country? How is it ever going to last? There's no way something like that with those kinds of people will endure. Well, when the world looks at the church and the kind of people that God calls into, his, into the fellowship of his son, the world scoffs at it. Those kind of people? Those are the kinds of people that are going to stand victorious in a new creation one day. Those are the kinds of people? Yeah, I don't think so. Why did he do it? 
because it's through the calling of nobodies that God shames the somebodies to so prick human pride and to prove that all of their boasting is empty. And Paul says in verse 29, all of this, of course, is by God's design, and it serves one purpose or one such purpose of of God's choosing people like us to be in the fellowship of his son is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Imagine a heaven where humans could boast before God. The noblemen are there because they managed to pull rank. The powerful, well, they had brought themselves up from nothing by their own willpower. They had won, they had earned, they had been victorious in life in such a way that they won the right to be there. They're like the old athlete, always pining on the glories of his previous career because God forbid anybody else ever come up that would be better than them. It's like the wise man who aced the exam, who knows the answers to all of the tricky questions, the big questions about life, and even has a thing or two to to offer to God on how God might better run the world. Can you imagine what it must be like to be in a heaven full of men and women who boast in themselves? Such a heaven would be no heaven at all. It would be like high school forever. But the gospel is what it is, and it works the way it works to call the very kind of people it calls so that at the end of the age, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, every mouth may be stopped. They may be shamed, and the whole world would be held accountable to God. That which you considered to be foolish was, the very, was my very wisdom in my son. And it's here, I think, that Paul has the words of Jeremiah in mind. We read them earlier. And so put your finger there in 1 Corinthians. I want to go back and I want to lay eyes on it again. Jeremiah chapter 9. Because he's going to quote Jeremiah in verse 31. But I think all of these verses toward the end, ultimately he's got Jeremiah playing in the background of his mind as he's writing. It says this, thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty or powerful man boast in his might. Let not the rich man or the noble man boast in his riches. Did you notice something there? Three different groups are mentioned, and they're the exact same three groups mentioned by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. It's almost as if this is the way that God's message has always worked. He continues in verse 24, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he who understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Take note of that. There in verse 24, let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he knows me. What is human wisdom incapable of doing? Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 1. He says in verse 20, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe, the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why has it been shown foolish? Because in the wisdom of God, the world and all of its wisdom did not know God. 
Let the man who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me. That all the wisdom in the world piled up into the biggest pile you could make cannot lead you to the knowledge of the one who created all things and rules all things well. But look at what he says in verse 29. He turns his attention, rather, verse 30, to those who do know him. He says in verse 30, and because of him, that is the God who will shame the, the wise and the, and the strong and the, and the things that are, because of this God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As we just saw in verse 21, man's wisdom fails to produce the wisdom of God or the knowledge of God. There in verse 23, if you glance down to that, we see that Christ himself is the wisdom of God. Only one place do you find the wisdom of God, not in man's wisdom, but in Christ, in Christ crucified. But what is this wisdom? Where do we see this wisdom filled out or defined? I want you to jump forward to the middle of chapter 2 because here I think we have a helpful definition. And we'll, we'll get there in a few weeks and talk about it more expansively. But just for our own consideration here, look at this in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, the spirit of Christ, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. What is the wisdom of God? It is the knowledge of God and the things freely given to us by God. It is the knowledge of his grace, of his gifts, of his grace gifts, those things which are freely given. And so it only makes sense then when we look back at verse 30 that Christ then becomes to us the wisdom from God because in Christ we are now able to behold and know and understand and to treasure and enjoy those things which have been freely given to us by God in him. And he describes the wisdom of God in Christ in three ways, three glorious phrases. That wisdom that looks like Freely given righteousness, freely given sanctification, and freely given redemption. There's not four things here. Grammatically, the way that verse 30 works is it's not that Christ is the wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption of God. Rather, that it is that Christ is God's wisdom to us and that that wisdom is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so... Those three terms are qualifying, defining the wisdom of God, rather of Christ in whom is found all of the, of the wisdom of God. And so what is he meaning by each one of these? How do we see these things freely given to us by God? Well, let's begin with righteousness. Martin Luther, I think, rightly distinguished between active and passive righteousness. Active righteousness is that righteousness that I want to offer to God. I am active in the one performing these righteous acts. But passive righteousness is righteousness that we receive from God as a gift in Christ. And it's passive righteousness that we have in view here. It's not righteousness given to Christ. It is a righteousness that is in Christ. It's a passive righteousness received as a gift. 
It's that righteousness whereby sinners like you and I, by, by nothing more than faith alone, can gain right standing before God. It's whereas we were once enemies of God, now become friends with our maker and adopted into his very family, whereby we would be called sons and daughters of the Most High. That on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself our sin and the wickedness of our self-reliance and all of our boasting, and he bore God's wrath in our place, such that all of our sins might be forgiven and all of the righteousness merited by his obedience might be given as a gift. Oh no, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God in Christ, beginning with righteousness but not only righteousness, also sanctification. That of those who have been justified in Christ by faith alone, we have been cleansed from sin, cleansed from guilt and shame, and now we are set apart. We are made holy positionally in Christ that is for the glory of a holy God transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son such that God is saying, as it were, I am taking over this life as of today such that by my grace to him, these things freely given through the power of my spirit, they will begin to live a life that looks a whole lot more like me. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5 verse 1, be imitators of God. How can you do that? Well, you can't unless you are freely sanctified, set apart by God according to his grace in Christ. But thirdly, not only sanctification, but redemption. That glorious word that we find all over our Bible of redemption. That means that you and I have been purchased out of slavery. Whereas we were once slaves to sin. And of all of its consequences, we are now free in Christ. Not because of anything that we've done. But because what has been given to us freely in Christ by God that we have been delivered from sin. We've been delivered from corruption and death such that now we fear nothing in our future. We are entirely secure in Christ, having been redeemed by him. No, he says, listen, the man who boasts is the one who boasts in the knowledge of God, that we have the very wisdom of God in Christ. We have the knowledge of those things that have been freely given and we've come to understand them. And those things are justification and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. So that it's written, quoting Jeremiah chapter 9, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you understand those things freely given to you by God as one who has been called by God, Though you might be yet seen as foolish in the world's eyes, though you might not have any credibility with your neighbors, your boast is not ultimately in anything but the Lord. And I want you to notice that verse 31, ultimately verse 31 is a corporate boasting. It's not merely an individual boast, though that's true. It's a corporate boasting. You may remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, just a few weeks ago, we saw how what the church was ultimately boasting in was various personalities and platforms. They were boasting in certain kinds of preachers. 
But notice how Paul is slowly, in light of Christ, turning the page for this church. That they're no longer to say, I follow Paul or I follow Cephas. No, rather the same words that they speak. The way in which, verse 10, they all agree is by saying Christ is our boast. We boast in Christ. That is our confession. It's a great picture, isn't it? God's grace toward us in Christ, calling us while we were yet undeserving, dead in our sins, giving us righteousness, setting us apart, redeeming us by the blood of his son. Ah, beloved, singing these things and proclaiming these things and discussing these things. What a great guard against the pride that leads to division. If you show me a divided church, I will show you a church that is boasting in all kinds of things other than Christ crucified. But if you show me a church that is united, Though the members of that church may be altogether different in their preferences and backgrounds, may be altogether different in various convictions, may be altogether different in personalities, you may walk into a room and think in a worldly way, according to worldly standards, I have nothing in common with any of these people, but I love them and I'm for them and I'm with them. Show me that kind of church and I will show you a church that is united in boasting in Christ. Beloved, that's our aim as a church. That we would be a church that boasts in Christ. Now listen, there's all kinds of things that we could boast in. I love to boast in your singing when I meet with others. I love to boast in the service of our saints and the way that you love one another. You read in the New Testament all the time, the Apostle Paul is boasting in the church. And yet even in all of these things, all of these boasts are ultimately a boasting in Christ, aren't they? Because what would we be able to give that has not ultimately been given to us first in him? Of the gifts that we've been given by his spirit to build up the church. Of the oneness that we enjoy in Christ, such that we are no longer two men, but now one new man in Christ. Paul wants a church that is shaped by God's grace to us in Jesus. He wants the ministry in the church resting upon God's power and not in the wisdom of the world. And he says, beginning in verse 1, that that's exactly what you've seen in my ministry. Case study number 2. Consider my ministry, he says. And in verse 1, we have a negation. He says, first of all, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to you like one of those who are wise or like the debater of the age. I didn't come to you like any of them. No, when the Apostle Paul came to Corinth, he didn't preach with the same bravado or the same kind of technical skill as the great philosophers in the city. All of those that everybody loved to listen to, in fact, even the church and they're attaching themselves to certain teachers there at the beginning of 1 Corinthians are essentially throwing their lot and they're saying, hey, listen, we've got philosophers too. Look at our debaters. We belong at the table too. But the Apostle Paul says, that's not how I came to you. I didn't come to you like a street philosopher. I didn't come to you like a stage debater. No, he says, how did he come to them? And he gives three descriptors in verses two through four. 
He says, first, in verse 2, I came knowing nothing but Christ crucified. Of all of the possible things that I do know and can know and could speak about, I had one bullet to shoot, and I shot it, and it was Christ crucified. That's all I came knowing. Now, Paul's not saying that he's ignorant of everything else. He's saying that which holds priority in my knowledge, such that all other knowledge that I possess is understood in light of this one thing, is the knowledge of Christ crucified. Because in it is the very wisdom of God. So first, he came knowing nothing but Christ crucified. But then in verse 3, he, secondly, he came in weakness and fear and trembling. There was no bravado. There was no puffing out of his chest. There was no rhetorical brilliance. You may remember all the way back in the book of Acts that the apostle Paul, when he came preaching the gospel in Corinth, was scared for his life. He wanted to run, and God came to him in a vision, and he says, take courage. I will be with you. Keep on preaching, for I have many people in this city. The apostle Paul says, I came to you shaking like a leaf, because any day that I open my mouth could be the last day that I open my mouth. No, there was nothing impressive about me, he says. But third, in verse four, he says, I came in the demonstration of power and wisdom. He's saying, when you consider my ministry, the fact that the gospel worked among you, the fact that, that through the preaching of the gospel, God called many of you from where you've come from in Christ, that can't be contributed to my rhetorical power. It cannot be contributed at all to, my, to the cleverness of my speech because I was nothing but a weak and fearful, trembling servant. No, the Spirit's power was demonstrated in my preaching because I preached Christ and nothing but Christ. Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. Only in Christ do sinners freely receive righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so the gospel may sound silly to the world, and it may not get us the kind of political clout that we want. And it may not give us front row seats in Hollywood. But the gospel is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the very power of God. And the minute that you and I prioritize anything above Christ, in the place of Christ, that the message of this church becomes something other than Christ crucified and all things related to Christ, then the Apostle Paul says we are going to empty the cross of Christ of its power. We may sound wise in the world's eyes with our materialistic message and our therapeutic message and our political message, and we may even fill this room to standing room only capacity, but there will be no power and no one will get saved. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, the spirit of God bears no witness to Christless sermons. Leave Jesus out of your preaching and the Holy Spirit will never come upon you. Why should he? He's not come on purpose that he may testify. Has he not come on purpose that he may testify of Christ? 
Did not Jesus say, he shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you? Yes, the subject was Christ and nothing but Christ. And such is the teaching which the spirit of God will own, be it ours never to wonder from this central point that we may determine to know nothing among men but Christ and his cross. That if we unplug the proclamation of this church from Christ crucified, we may sound wise in the world's eyes, but we will have no power. There is a reason that you find no church planning movements coming out of theologically liberal churches because the message that they preach has no power. They have abandoned Christ crucified. Paul says, I came to you not with any bravado. I came to you knowing one thing and one thing only in my message. And though it may seem foolish and weak in the world's eyes, this message of Christ and him crucified is the very wisdom of God, that which human wisdom cannot deliver. And so why does Paul refuse to know nothing among them but Christ? Well, he says ultimately, verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The apostle wants their faith to rest not in persons, not in presentations, not in platforms, but in God's power. A powerful ministry is one in which God's word is out front. It will be proclaimed week by week by week men. And it may sound like a weak message. And we may look around and go, wow, our church is really growing the way that some of these other churches are growing. And, and we may stop and question whether or not the message that we preach week in and week out as we aim to preach Christ crucified and whether or not it really works. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the power of God is not measured in crowds, but is measured in conversions and in the fruit of righteousness among those who have been brought into the fellowship of his son. There is a metric that the world cannot know of what success in ministry looks like. Now, is what Paul's saying here, does he mean that Christian teachers should avoid diligent study or excellence in communication? Not at all. That's not what he's saying. These verses don't in any way justify lethargic study or, or careless delivery in the pulpit. They don't prohibit deliberate preparation or passion or clear articulation or even persuasive presentation. Preaching is nothing if not an aim to persuade on the basis of Christ crucified. Rather, what they warn against is any method that leads people to say, what an amazing preacher, rather than what an amazing savior. The question is, am I magnifying Jesus or myself? Are we exalting Jesus Christ crucified so that our faith as a church and of all those who would come in might rest not on the wisdom of men, but in power of God? Not in, wow, that church has a program for taking over the state. Wow, that church has a program for eliminating this, that, or the other ideology. Wow, that church... Their mercy ministry is going to eradicate homelessness in Denton. Those may all be decent pursuits depending on what they are. 
But at the end of the day, are we preaching in such a way that, the, that our faith and the faith of any that come among us would be in Jesus Christ and him crucified? And so, beloved, listen, wherever we are, whether it is that you're doing evangelism in your own house or around with your neighbors at your workplace, or whether you're doing it in open air on the, on, on the street, or whether we're among one another in our fellowship groups or our one another groups as we aim to encourage one another, no doubt many of you are going to, to feel like your preparation going into those things is weak and your abilities are lame. You end up having a conversation with your neighbor who's an atheist next door and you go, oh man, I, I really hope that, he, I hope that he doesn't bring up this particular atheist author or that particular atheist author. I, I don't know what I would say if they did. How many times have we walked away from conversations like that, jumped in our car, gone home, and it's only then that we go, oh, if only I would have said that. That would have been the magic bullet, but would it have been? Or when we sit with our, with our peers, brothers and sisters, and we aim to encourage one another with the word, there are going to be times where you, much like me, are going to feel ill-equipped, and you're going to be praying in the moment, God, give me anything to say from your word that might do them spiritual good in this moment. What Paul's reminding us here is that that weakness, that fear, that trembling whether in our evangelism or in our discipling of one another, that that is the way into ministry. It's in the context of fear and weakness and trembling that we trust God's word to do what we can't, to save sinners and to sanctify our brothers and sisters. And so I think what, one thing that we should take away from this passage is brothers and sisters, trust God's word. I fear too often we may be too reliant on our own wisdom in discipling, our own wisdom in parenting, our own wisdom in marriage, our own wisdom in, in navigating things in the workplace. And that's not to say that there's not all kinds of practical wisdom that, that comes from you, but it is to say, I think, that what we ultimately want to trust in is not man's wisdom, but God's power to bring our brothers and sisters back to the gospel over and over and over as we speak God's word to them. And as we do, let me make you a guarantee. As we do, as we become more and more explicit and open in doing this, we will not look powerful in the world's eyes. And we will not be impressive to our neighbors in Denton. And yet, we will trust God's spirit to powerfully use God's word as we speak it to others. Such that in a year from now, in 10 years from now, in 30 years from now, there will be members in this church who on this very day have not yet been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel, who are going to be sitting in this congregation and are going to have chances to consider their calling. Consider when you heard the gospel from that saint or that preacher and you knew that is the power of God. Beloved, let's not trust in anything else. It's so easy, isn't it? As we see our influence waning, as we want to regain political power, listen, we want to aim to serve our neighbor well in political processes. Our message at the end of the day, the only thing that we can ultimately know, it's at the apex and at the heart, the center of our proclamation the very basis upon which we know anything else is that we know Christ 
We know Christ crucified. And in him we have received righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And we get to offer that to the world. May the Lord find us faithful in these things. Let's pray.